0: As we get ready to study God's Word today, I wonder if there's anybody here who is who is done with 2020. Yeah? <laughs> to put it in the past, learn from it, grow from it, and move forward because this year is done. Bring on 2021. Come on, come on, bring it on. We got good things in store. And yet in the midst of it all, in the midst of all of the craziness and all the messed up things in our world right now, why do we as Christians have reason to rejoice? Why do we rejoice? And the answer is this, because of what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 9 foretelling of the coming of the Christ the Messiah 700 years prior he said in faith looking forward through the centuries for to us a child is born to us a son is given and that is the Christmas story now of course when we think of that verse we think of angels we have heard on high, and we think of shepherds watching their flocks by night, and we think of round yon virgin mother and child away in a manger, no crib for a bed. And all that is well and good, but what I wanna ask is more than just the nativity scene. We think when we read the story in scripture when we hear the songs we tend to think of kind of a pretty little nativity scene sitting in our front yard with the animals and the shepherds and mary and joseph but today i want to ask you to look beyond just the nativity scene and see behind the scenes and i want to ask you what was going on behind the scenes in the spirit world. And in just a minute, we're going to look at John chapter one and, and, and go really through the first 14 verses today. And But before we do, I've asked kind of the band to stay here and the lights to, to kind of stay down low because I wanna take you into a picture of something to try to imagine what was going on behind the scenes. I wanna to read to you something inspired by Dan Meyer. And he asked the question, What was it like to be one of the members of the Trinitarian Godhead in heaven and then come down to earth to enter into our humble existence? He says, before the beginning of time, before there were vast black holes sucking matter into the staggering abyss of interstellar space. Before there existed stardust and subatomic particles forming matter and energy. Before there was light or darkness, before there was time or space, before there was breath or life, there was always and only God. This God was and is infinite in being and perfection. A most pure spirit, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, infallible, independent, not standing in need of anything but always and only manifesting his own glory. The Bible teaches that this God existed and still exists as three persons of one substance, power and eternity. This Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And for us, it challenges our imagination to even try to understand what life was like within this trinity. Because our lives are are so stricken with conflict, so much confusion, so much restlessness that we can hardly conceive of the absolute communion and contentment and joy within the life of God himself. For to be in God's presence, to be in God's presence. If we were to taste it for even a nanosecond, it would be the most rapturous reality we had ever known. Think of chills running up and down your body for all of eternity. Imagine all understanding and all beauty and love suddenly and simultaneously filling every pore of your being and now realize that if you were to experience that not just for a thousand years, not just for 10,000 years, you would still not even know a fraction of the glory of actually being God for even a single moment. And I think this is something of what the Apostle John is trying to communicate to us in the Christmas story. When he writes in the Bible these words, John 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, and this Word was with God, and the Word, the Greek word here in the New Testament is logos, which is more than just like words on a page, but has to do with like like the the wisdom and the knowledge and the essence of life itself, the reason behind all things. This word was with God and the word was God. And so I, I think what's happening here is that John is wrestling with words to try to describe to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what existed before there was time, back when there was only God, when there was only perfection. And then this word that was God and was with God actually demonstrates his creative power in the next verse, John 1, verse 2 and 3. This word was with God in the beginning and through him... All things were made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That God forms man, the Bible tells us, in his image, mankind, man and woman, and breathes the essence of life into their being. But then, man and woman sin, and in disobeying God, as sin enters the world, that that light in us, in the image of God, that that light that he breathed into us is quenched. And so, God launches an all-out rescue plan, and the rescue plan begins with the Christmas story. John chapter 1 verse 14, a few verses later, he says, surprise twist in the story, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. This this word, this, this being, this son of God, as John reveals to us, actually experiences the humiliating step of entering into the very world that he created. He puts on flesh. The only way that I can think of it, even though it's not a perfect example, is what it would be like for you to become a worm, crawling around the ground to to put on, I don't know, what does a worm have? Not flesh. If you were to put on slime (laughs) like a worm and crawl around on the ground, maybe that's even just a little fraction of something to kind of help us envision what it would be like, the, the humbling, the humiliating experience of the God of the universe putting on flesh. The message translation version says of John 1:14 and this sublime word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. Isn't that a neat way to put that? I kind of like that wording. The word put on flesh and moved into our neighborhood, the son of God. So let me ask you a question. How are things in your neighborhood? Is your neighborhood a place of absolute perfection just like heaven all the time? Let me ask you about your street. Up and down your street or the the apartment building that you live in, is everything just always relational harmony, perfect bliss, absolute joy, peace, and contentment all the time just like heaven? If so, your real estate values are going to go really high, right? Right? Because I don't know about your neighborhood, but in my neighborhood, there's like the guy who has a dog who wakes you up barking at 3 a.m., right? The, the, the other guy who's got a Harley Davidson who comes in and revs the engine at 11 p.m. Sorry, Dr. B, that's you, isn't it? I was, sorry to call you out like that in public. No. There, there's the woman who drives her Toyota Highlander so fast down the street that it looks like she's qualifying for a NASCAR race. There's, there's the, the woman who, who, every time I wave at her and smile, she pretends like she doesn't see me and it drives me crazy. There, there's the, there are the people on my street who have values and lifestyles that go against the Word of God. There's the guy who lets his dog. Poop in my backyard, which again goes against the word of God, I do believe. There's the cat that crawls on top of the car and leaves footprints on my clean paint job. Am am I the only one? Can I get an amen? I don't know about your neighborhood, but I'm the only perfect one in mine. No, I'm a mess too, right? Because the fact is, we live in a world, we live in a neighborhood, if you will. In our world, it is filled with people who constantly hurt us and cause problems and heartache and grief. And so here's what some people do. Tracy and I started to watch this show in the Yukon territory where it's like, you know on HGTV they have house hunters? Well this is like house hunters for people who don't wanna live in your neighborhood. Uh, Yukon for sale, it's like, it's where the real estate agent takes people way out, out in the woods somewhere where they're like, you know, in a cabin 40, 50, 60 kilometers from the nearest town. Uh, there are no neighbors. They, they have to, you know, there are no roads into the house. Like they have to, to ride on a four-wheeler or on a snowmobile in the winter, like an hour each way through the woods in the snow in order to get there. There's no indoor plumbing No water, no toilets. They're like using the outhouse in minus 20 degree weather. And there's always this point in the show. Now, I don't know that they do this in HGTV uh, on House Hunters, but I know they always do this on Yukon for sale. And there was another one, I think, called Buying Alaska that we would watch a lot too, where it's the exact same kind of stories, and every time the producers ask them a question, and they look into the camera, and you can tell they've been asked this question. You never hear the producers, right? But you know they always answer the same question, so it's kind of like in the script that they're supposed to say this part. And they're always asked the question, why do you do it? Why are you moving way out in the middle of nowhere? And they always say the exact same thing, don't they? What is it? They always say, well, I'm just trying to get away, right? I'm just trying to get away from it all. They always say, we're just trying to get away from the hustle and bustle and all the problems of the world. Let me interpret that for you. What they're saying is, we're trying to carve out our own little piece of heaven here on earth. What they're saying is is that that we're trying to get away from all the problems and all the people so that we can can kind of have our own little paradise. And you know what? We all do the same thing in different ways. Now, maybe you're not moving to the Yukon, at least not this year, but, but we fix up our homes, right, as a comfortable little retreat to be able to get away from the world. In fact, now there's this thing where instead of even answering the door when somebody comes to your front step, you get to see whether it's even a person you want to talk to or not. You just look on your phone, and there's like the little app with the camera, and you can determine whether you want to pretend like you're home or not. Why? Because we, we kind of isolate ourselves from the problems of the world. Here in the Maritimes, Maritimers know about that. It's called cottage culture, Right? And and so there are cottages all up and down every river, every lake, every backwoods road. You'll find these little cottages away from it all. Why do we do that? We we build friend groups with people who are a lot like us and tend to stay more and more away from people who aren't like us. And the internet makes that easier than ever, right? Right? You'll see how people, you know, we, we put things on social media to feed the, the, the likes and responses of people who agree with us and generally people who don't agree with us bother not to comment because we know in this world that if you actually publicly disagree with somebody online that they're going to call you an idiot. And so we just don't bother. And so we, we cloister away in our own little private version of heaven Surrounded by that which we like and pushing away that which we don't like. And maybe you're not buying a place in the Yukon Territory. I don't know that that's the direction I'd go. I'd probably buy a deserted island somewhere in the Caribbean. Can I get an amen? Yeah. Especially in February. But what we're trying to do in so many ways is is we're trying to carve out our own little piece of heaven in the world, and we fail, we fail, and here's what's amazing, Jesus did the exact opposite, and and, and now follow me now, this is the Christmas story, the God of the universe leaves his perfect heaven To move into your neighborhood. Listen, instead of of running away from the problems, instead of running away from your mess, God wants to move into it. Philippians 2. Oh, come on now. That's good. (laughs) Philippians 2 describes it for us in great detail the 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 humiliation the humbling of what God did for us when he left his home in order to come into ours here's what it says in Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 5 your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature god did not consider equality with god something to be grasped or or something to be used to his own advantage is what most translations say. But rather, he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In other words, he set aside his power and majesty and left the beauty of his perfect heaven, and he came down, he stooped down, he bent down from being the master to becoming the servant. From royal robes to filthy rags. Why? It was the rescue plan of salvation for you and for me. And so he was born to this little town of Bethlehem to a young, unwed mother who ended up marrying a construction worker? And where did they lay the newborn baby? In a feeding trough for animals, in some type of barn-like structure, surrounded by cow dung and the stale smell of sheep pee. We don't put that in our nativity scenes, do we? Right? Have you ever looked at somebody's nativity scene and you look, What's that by the baby Jesus there? Oh, that's where we put the cow dung. Oh, what's that smell? Well, we import sheep pea from the Middle East just to make sure that it smells real in our nativity scene. No, we don't do that. They're, they're usually made of porcelain, right? They're pretty. And yet, I think what we really need is smell-o-vision when we read the Christmas story in the Bible in order to see how real and raw it is. This was no Hallmark movie, This was no rags to riches story. In in fact, he didn't start in the gutter and then raise himself up to power and prominence. He kind of stayed in the gutter, according to important society folks. They looked down on him for how much time he spent with with sinners and, and, and prostitutes, how much time he spent with drunkards and with addicts. One of his final acts on this earth was to bend down On his knees and washed the dirty, smelly, calloused feet of fishermen. And to forgive and bless those who cursed him. And if that wasn't enough, he bent down further still and humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross on a dirty, blood-stained, criminal's cross, hanging between liars and thieves. Why? It was his rescue plan, the plan of salvation. His body was twisted that our sinful nature might be straightened out. He was made filthy that we might be made clean. His blood was shed that we might be washed. He descended down to the lowest place that we might ascend to the highest place. He came down to be with us so that we can be lifted up to be with him. And that is the story of Christmas. but it means nothing to you until you invite him to become not just part of your story, but the hero of your story. See, the problem is we live in a world where we make ourselves the hero of the story. And this means nothing to you until you realize that God is the hero of this story. And he then, when you receive his forgiveness, not just encourages you, not just implores of you, but actually demands that you then do the same things that he did. He died, and he says, now you must die to yourself, so that it is no longer you who live, but him who lives in you. He loved you, and then he says, and now you must love others, even those whom you consider unlovable. He forgives you and then says, now you must forgive others no matter what they have done to you. He wants to purify you from your sinful behavior. And then when he washes us clean and sets us straight and and gives us his purity, then Instead of keeping us cloistered away from the world, he actually sends us back out into the world so that our purity will stand in contrast to the dirtiness all around us. He blesses those who curse him and then calls us to do the same. He pours himself into the poor and marginalized in their culture, and then he calls us to do the same. See, a life of comfort is never what we were called to as Christians. And if you think that following Jesus will make you safe and comfortable and everybody's going to like you all the time, then you have misunderstood the story of Christmas when God moved into your neighborhood. Dr. Richard Seltzer tells of a moment after he performed a surgery where a young woman was left disfigured. It's from his book, Mortal Lessons, and I just want to read a little excerpt for you. He said, I stand by the bed where this young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish, a tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth have been severed. And she will be like this from now on. As the surgeon, I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. He says, but nevertheless, to remove the tumor from her cheek, I had to cut that little nerve. And so now, laying in the bed with fear in her voice, she asks Will my mouth always be like this? Yes, it will always be so. I tell her the nerve has been cut. She nods and is silent. And her young husband is in the room. He smiles and he looks at his wife with a love so absolutely generous that it stuns the surgeon to silence. She's worried that her beauty is gone, but his love for her is stronger than ever. And so the surgeon said, I watched as this young husband bends down to kiss her mouth. I am so close that I can see how he twists his lips to accommodate hers. And he says, And once upon a time, God bent down. And he took some dirt and he shaped and formed it into humanity and breathed his life into us. And then at Christmas, God bent down again. And this time, it was us. As he reshaped himself, he then offers to breathe new life back into anyone who will choose to believe and receive him. And so I want you to listen to this. Here's the main idea. You say, Joel, why are you waxing so philosophical today? It's because I want you to understand something. With a level of, of profoundness and awe and beauty that, that if you are not overwhelmed by this picture today, I fear that I have failed at my job. Here's what I ask. Here's, wh- here's the point. Here's what I want for us to accomplish today is I want to forever change the way that you look at nativity scenes so that now when you read the Christmas story, when you look at a nativity scene, when you when you see Mary and Joseph and shepherds and angels and wise men and cows and and goats, and when you look and you see a baby in a manger, no longer just to see a child, but to see that this child is the one who was the creator of the universe, who looked down from his perfect heaven and saw our world in helpless estate and launched an all-out rescue mission to save us and set us free from the sin that has held us in chains. And that, folks, that is the real story of Christmas. And if you miss that, you've missed everything. Oh, listen, 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 listen. What I want to ask you to do is to get up on your feet today as I read to you this closing passage of Scripture from God's Word. I want to read it to you in its full context. We read just a few, three or four verses of it before, but now I want to read for you really the chapter. And I want you to, if you would, perhaps even close your eyes because it's not going to be on the screen It's not going to be on your screens at home either, those of you who are with us online. Wherever you are, would you maybe just close your eyes and listen and absorb the words of Scripture. Soak it up like a sponge. Philippians chapter 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship With the Spirit, if any, tenderness and compassion. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. The word of the Lord for us today.